welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for Session 129 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I thought it was important for us to revisit this topic as Black women continue to be disproportionately impacted by domestic violence. For this conversation, I was joined by Dr. Shanita Brown. Dr. Brown is a licensed professional counselor, speaker, educator, and trainer that fosters transformative and empowering dialogue about intimate partner violence and mental health wellness. With over 10 years of experience in the clinical mental health field, She is a servant leader dedicated to breaking the silence and empowering change to foster the next generation of advocates and leaders. Dr. Brown and I chatted about how you can recognize the signs of domestic violence, why it's important to understand domestic violence in the context of power and control as opposed to anger management, how you can support a loved one who may be in a relationship with an abusive partner, And she shared tons of incredible resources for anyone who would like additional help. If you hear something that resonates with you while listening, please be sure to share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Joy. It's definitely an honor and privilege to be here with you. Yeah, I'm really happy you were able to join us because I think we really need to, you know, continue having this conversation around domestic violence. And I think what happens a lot of times is that people aren't even always aware in their own relationships that there may be a presence of domestic violence. So can you tell us how somebody might even be able to recognize this? Yes, that's a great question. So what really defines this abusive relationships and tactics? It's really, it's a common thread of power and control. So it's this intentional pattern of behavior used by an abuser when one partner tries to maintain power and control over another partner, right? And so that looks like someone who may be extremely jealous, right? Who a partner may be trying to check their cell phone, their social media, or email, or insisting that a partner texts when they arrive um, or when they leave for work every day, or when you may hear um, someone saying, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells around their partner, isolation from your family and your friends, always feeling like they're afraid um, or appearing to be afraid um, when they feel like they can't go to work, they can't go to school, they can't go to social events um, because they're afraid that it may upset their partner. These are really controlling tactics and these are red flags of domestic violence. And I think it's really important that you gave us such a variety of ways to recognize this, right? Because I think sometimes people just think it's physical, right? So the person is hitting them um, when really, obviously, abuse can be all of these things that you've named plus more, I'm sure. 
Right. So this domestic violence, and sometimes you may hear intimate partner violence. And so really, and it can happen to anyone, Joy. It can happen to all cultures, all backgrounds, people who are married, people who are unmarried, heterosexual, people in the LGBT community, wealthy, the poor, religious, non-religious, all ethnicities. But the key takeaway here, like you're saying, is this power and control and it's physical violence, emotional violence. And, and that emotional, excuse me, emotional abuse is one where they're silent wounds, right? You can't see the emotional scars. And that causes just, uh, just as much damage as physical abuse or sometimes more because that is lingering um, that lingering effects of the emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. So can you go in a little more depth about the emotional abuse or what that might look like? The emotional abuse is that when people may say that I feel torn, name calling, they begin to think that what they are hearing, they begin to think that that's part of who they are. It leads to mental health challenges. It leads to anxiety, this irrational thought pattern. It leads to depression. It leads to maladaptive or unhealthy coping strategies, such as turning to substance abuse, things of that nature. So that emotional abuse and emotional wounds is, is really damaging. And I find that it's much more damaging than physical abuse. Mm, and I'm guessing it would also be probably a little harder to recognize. It is are a hard to recognize because when you have the conversation, you can't see that wound. So if you're with someone, you may be sitting to someone or maybe working or have a family member who is enduring domestic violence, you can't see that physical scar. But it's that name calling, that's the belittling, you know, putting somebody down that they're enduring every day. And it could be for years that you may endure emotional abuse. And it, it isn't what people say, the physical abuse, but that emotional abuse that they are dealing with every day. That is damaging, just one psyche. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Brown, you also mentioned, because I think something that also happens is that people aren't quite sure whether a behavior is their partner like really caring about them and their mm-hmm. concern right. or is it abuse? So you mentioned like having to text when you leave or when you get back from work in the evening. Right. And so I could see some people saying like, oh, that is just my partner caring about me. So how would you know whether something like that is an, a sign of abuse or whether it's just your partner being concerned? This is a great question because you want to think of what is healthy and what is unhealthy, right? So again, we have to examine what is that threat, that pattern of abusive and power and control behavior, that intentional pattern. You have to tell me who you're talking to. Or if I didn't text you, why you didn't text me? Or, hey, it's, it's one thing to say, text me when you get to work because I care about your well-being, Right. But there's a difference with saying somebody that's very controlling, you need to text me every day or this is going to happen. Or you need to text me every day because I'm very concerned or this may not happen. So there's that power. It's that abusive, intentional pattern of behavior. That's the difference between texting every day or just a check-in. Mm, so you're really looking at, like you said, the pattern. And the pattern. You know, if, the, if it, this is the only thing that's happening, then it could just be like a cause for concern. But if this right. is something that's present with the name calling and right. you know, maybe some physical abuse, then you can more clearly see the picture. Absolutely. Putting someone down because they didn't text or, you know, making someone feel bad about themselves or, you know, well, you're crazy because you didn't do this or you didn't text me or things of that, you know, so it's this pattern, right? You're going to find that pattern. And a lot of times people can't see the pattern and you have to pull it out. You have to ask the question, what are you seeing? Mm -hmm. Right. And then when you ask the question, what are you experiencing? What's happening in your relationship? And then people begin to say, wow, I never thought 
that this was a form of domestic violence. So Dr. Brown, has it been your experience that people will maybe come into counseling with you to maybe figure out like how they can work on the relationship with their partner and then you're able to to kind of show them this pattern? Yes. So I find quite often when I am working with clients and my initial intake and doing a very thorough assessment, you know, what's happening in your relationship, you begin to ask the questions, what are you experiencing? Do you feel safe? Sometimes they don't feel safe. And then you begin to ask, what are you experiencing? Then you have what I find very helpful is showing people the power and control will, which was developed by the Duluth model, which helps with people looking out that at the core of the will is power and control, right? And so you have coercion, you have threats, you have intimidation, you have economic abuse. And when people begin to look at the power of control, it resonates with them. They may say, wow, I am experiencing them. And you ask the question, what are you experiencing that you see on that will? Oh, yeah, they do put me down. Or they do control what I do. Or they control what I wear. Or they limit my outside involvement. Or they're very jealous. So I do feel like I'm walking on eggshells. And then it clicks. That light bulb goes off for them. And say, wow, I never know this was domestic violence. All this time, I just thought they loved me or they were trying to show me that they were concerned. And I never thought that this was domestic violence. Mm-hmm. It is very hard. So you have to have tools to help people see that what you're describing isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would imagine that that would be even more difficult for someone who maybe has come from a home where mm-hmm. they've seen this with their parents or, you know, with their loved ones growing up and they don't necessarily know that all relationships don't function in this way. Absolutely. The first relationship, the first image of relationship starts at home. So that sets up the relational template for people. And so they begin to think this is normal. This is all I've ever known. This is what I've seen, as you've mentioned, not the joy. But when they come in saying, I want some help, I want to feel safe. I'm not really sure. I don't really want to end the relationship, but maybe let's talk about this anger management. And you begin to educate them and they really understand that this is not an anger management issue, that this is a overall pattern of abusive and violent behavior, then they begin to really rethink what they're in. And sometimes they're not ready to leave immediately and that's okay. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the distinction between this not being an anger management issue and the domestic violence? So, you know, I want people to really understand that, that abuse is not an anger management issue, right? So people who are experiencing an anger management issue, they're going to go off on their boss. They're going to go off on their cousin and their friend or coworker or random person. But abuse is carefully targeted at one person, right? So again, it's that overall pattern of abusive and violent behavior. And that is not an anger management issue. That's the difference. They're controlling behaviors that are really the biggest red flags that you look out for in relationships. That is such an important distinction, Dr. Brown, because it also makes me think about how often you will hear people who have stories of being abused by their partners, but then everybody else in their life is like, what are you talking about? They're so nice. They're so charming. They're so X, Y, Z, right? But it really goes to this crafting of a character where nobody else can kind of see what's going on inside the home. Absolutely. And again, so it is that's why domestic violence is not an anger management issue, right? It's this control, this pattern of behavior. And you begin to talk to someone, you'd be able to recognize and hear, they can tell you, well, it happened during this time, it happened again, it happened this time, it happened this time where they always put me down or they make me feel guilty 
or sometimes they make me feel guilty about my children or, you know, they say that the abuse didn't happen or they say that sometimes I caused something to, to make the abuse happen. And that's never the case. But it's that pattern of behavior, very that pattern of controlling behavior. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you're talking about is gaslighting, right? Yeah. So something that has kind of gotten more talk in, I think, recent months um, yeah. is coming up in more conversations. Can you talk a little bit more about what gaslighting is and what that looks like in the relationship? Yes, well, gaslighting is when, you know, and a partner will make the other partner think that they're crazy, that it really didn't happen, that there's something that they're the cause of it and maybe minimizing what's happening. And that is really the form that power of control, right? That pattern you begin to think that maybe, maybe this didn't really happen. No, I didn't really hit that. And they, they begin to think for well, after a while that, you know, this really is an abuse or I am crazy or there's something wrong with me or I'm making it up. And Really, there's nothing really wrong with them, but that's the manipulative behavior, right, of gaslighting and what happens in that situation when one partner begins to think that, hey, I am somehow contributing to this, or I am crazy, or, you know, something is really wrong here, or nothing is really wrong with me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear, if you can, Dr. Brown, a little bit more about, like, the pattern or the, the course that this takes, because it usually does not start off so obvious, right? So an abuser would necessarily start off by saying you can't go to your mom's on the weekends or whatever. It usually starts much smaller and then progresses. Can you talk a little bit about what that progression looks like? Yes. Yeah, so in doing the research of domestic violence, and you, you have heard the term of, you may hear the cycle of abuse or a cycle of violence. And recent research has changed that there really isn't a cycle of violence. There really isn't in one, right? Because no one gets into a relationship to really say that they're in this cycle that's somehow contributing to it. But what happened, you may see that an abuser may be nice at one point, what you may say like the honeymoon phase, and then it begins to escalate. And then you may see a little bit more, just call it this gas gaslighting or this form of psychological manipulation. And then maybe having some sort of plant in this doubt in the victim or survivor's mind of what they are experiencing maybe then begin to question their perception of the relationship. Um, then it begins to add a little bit more fuel to it. And then it becomes very explosive. And then it repeats itself. So on one hand, it is a cycle. On one hand, it isn't because it's mainly this pattern of abusive behavior, if that makes sense, Dr. Joy. So what is the cycle piece that is not quite accurate? The actual term of the cycle of violence. I would okay, say. got yeah. you. So mm-hmm. so the pattern is pretty consistent, yeah. but mm-hmm. calling it a cycle isn't the most consistent anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Got you. Okay, Absolutely. okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so are there any warning signs or things that you should be looking out for kind of in the beginning phases of a relationship that may kind of tip you off that this person may be abusive? A partner who is extremely jealous. Mm-hmm. Um, the isolation putting you down, I would say, making a partner feel bad about themselves. Some of the name calling, intimidation, destroying property, somehow saying that, well, I wouldn't have done this if you would have just listened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that difficulty feeling, yeah. taking accountability for any of their actions. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so important for people to understand that, that um, abuse is never your fault, mm-hmm. right? It is never anything that you have done. You know, it is important for the perpetrator or the abuser. Um, sometimes the terms are used interchangeably. They're held accountable for their actions. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. And then we end up what we call a lot of victim blaming. Yeah. Well, what did you do? What were you wearing? Or what? And it's never the case. And we have to really change that to placing the accountability on where it belongs. And that's the abuser. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear your thoughts, Dr. Brown, about why you think we jump to the victim blaming so often. Like, why is it so hard for us to believe that people could be being abused? I think me personally, I think because overall in society, we have this culture mindset where men are in control and they're the dominant um, gender and uh, women don't have a voice. And so I think women aren't believed. And so we're always finding ways to look at what are women doing or what have partners doing in, in the relationship and not look at a way to kind of change that story. So it's important to look at what we're saying first. What is our response? Like really start when you hear about a situation, how do I respond in a way that is not victim blaming? You know, that, you know, a victim can never do anything to call someone to hit someone. It's important to look at how do we hold each other accountable and how we hold that perpetrator accountable for their behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think it's deeply rooted in our society. I really think it is. Yeah. So you already alluded to this a little bit, Dr. Brown, but another complicated part of this is, you know, someone does realize that they are in an abusive relationship and then maybe it's trying to figure out whether they're going to stay in this relationship or not. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times on the outside looking in, right, again, people are quick to say, well, why don't they just leave? Why don't they just get Mm -hmm. out? But of course, this is a very complicated, complex um, kind of a decision. So can you talk with us a little bit about what that decision making process might look like? Um, Dr. Joy, this is a very good question. Thank you so much because uh, we are so quick to judge people. Well, I wouldn't have done that. I can't believe there is still in that. I would have been gone, right? But with domestic violence, it's so complex. There's so many reasons why a victim would stay. There may be children involved for economic reasons. They're actually afraid. I mean, there's a lot of fear here. And, And then if they Think about leaving that risk of their lives become more at risk um, for death. So um, we think about financial support, children, poverty reasons, being the breadwinner, having nowhere to go. Um, actually, love is a reason why some people may stay. They think this is actually love. So it is not something so quick where we can pull them out. Hey, girl. Hey, guy, let's come on and get out this relationship. It is very risky. Mm-hmm. It is very deadly when we talking about leaving an abusive relationship. So that has to be thought out. It has to be planned and it has to be um, take, all things have to be considered when we're talking about leaving an abusive relationship. It is not easy. Is the research still consistent in talking about how dangerous it is? Like that is the most dangerous time when a partner decides to leave. Mm -hmm. And it takes seven attempts. The research says it takes seven attempts to try and leave before they have successfully left that relationship. Seven attempts. Mm-hmm. Want people to know it is not an easy situation, and so I applaud people when they are trying to leave the situation or trying to take those steps. And you have to connect with people and connect with community resources who are trained to do this work in safety planning. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, okay, let's say I have made this decision to try to get out of this relationship. What kinds of things or resources do I need to connect with to try to figure out what my plan is going to be? Yeah, so it's one talking to um, a domestic violence agency or people who are trained in safety planning. I'm talking to a trusted family member 
who will provide support and not additional victim blaming or um, talking to faith-based communities that will offer support versus trying to tell you to stay in that relationship, right? So you want to connect with people who will understand what you are going through and can help you safety plan, right? If you have children collecting documents such as your birth certificates, social security cards, having money in a separate account. Um, so all these takes time, having a night bag packed for your children and packed for yourself and having um, a plan in place when you're getting ready to leave that situation. Yeah, definitely connected with a domestic violence agency. Yeah, to help with safety planning. And most um, counties have this, correct? Like we'll have some kind of agency that is designed to help with this type of effort. Absolutely. Every state has a coalition for domestic violence and sexual violence and then connecting you with that agency. Yeah. For safety planning. Mm -hmm. That would be the first place I was in and working with victims survivor, connecting them. I'm doing the work as well, but also connecting them. We work in collaborative, collaborative is the collaborative effort in safety planning. And it may take several sessions. It may not get done in that one initial session. It's going to take several until that person is say, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Right. Having them, empowering them to make the decision. And how can friends and family be supportive at this point? Right. This is another great question, too, because oftentimes I hear people say, my family don't get me. Or my pastor told me to stay. And so one, we have to always be aware of the complexity of domestic violence, that it is not easy for a person to leave. We want to always be concerned about their well-being, about their safety. So I would tell people, if you're concerned, say, hey, I'm concerned about your well-being instead of trying to say you need to leave. Right. And so if you're telling them you need to leave, you're doing the same thing that an abuser is doing. You're telling them you're controlling them, but walk with them. I am here to support you. I may not know what this is like, but your your well-being is a concern for me. I love you. I care about you. Here is the hotline. I am here to walk with you when you are ready. Those mm-hmm. are, that's very supportive to helping someone in that situation, getting them flyers or brochures, connect them to the 800 hotline or to a shelter, to an agency, but never go in or lead in with trying to tell somebody what to do in that situation because you become part of what they're already dealing with is a controlling situation. Yeah. And I have, you know, heard people talk about like, it is just really important for you to be there and to let them know, you know, if you ever decide to leave, I got you. Right. Like, so, so that you, that even maybe family and friends can become a part of the safety planning if there is a go time. Right. And just be there to listen, just be there to listen and be available. Mm -hmm. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Non-judgmental environment, create a safe space. Yeah. So Dr. Brown, can you talk about what um, therapy might look like for somebody maybe who is either deciding whether they're going to leave the relationship or maybe somebody who has left the relationship? Like what kinds of things might you be working with them on in therapy? It just depends on um, how they show up in, in that session. It shows up what, what, what stage they are in. They could be that I'm thinking about leaving or I didn't know I'm dealing with this and now I've learned the term. So a lot of times, again, it goes back to educating, education on what domestic violence is, right? And then providing them with the tools such as the power and control will, helping them to identify that things that they have been experiencing, it resonates with them. And then it may talk about, you know, 
they may be dealing with anxiety. They may be dealing with depression. We may talk about, so how have you been coping with this domestic violence? You may begin to hear things such as, well, I begin to drink more or I'm doing some other things that are not so helpful. So it just depends on how they show up um, in the session and when they're ready to leave the relationship. But when they are ready, we begin to talk about safety planning. And that is several sessions in regards to taking that step to safety planning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to pay attention to as well, because I think some people may be worried that if they go to a therapist and they are in a domestic violence situation, that the the whole therapy will be focused on getting you to leave the relationship. Absolutely not. When that is not yes. the case. That is or at least it should case. not be the case. It, it should not we'll be the say. case. But it depends. Okay, Dr. Joy, it depends, right? Okay. So let's 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 pause. It depends. So if if someone is in an active, I would say, if they're in a situation that we should always be concerned about their safety and well-being, right? right? So if someone say I'm afraid, right? Or it's happening to my children, then it begins to you know, work with them or should we have to report, right? Or report an issue thinking about the well-being of the children or walking them through. So it just depends also leaking that person to a shelter. I've plenty of times I've said, let's talk about ways to talk about your safety, right? And sometimes they would say, I'm going to go to the shelter and the shelter will work with them. But it's always thinking about the safety first of that particular client when they're presenting. Yeah. Right. Of course. Of yeah, course. Actually, this said it. And so sometimes it's helpful to talk about relational patterns, right? The upbringing and what did you see? A lot of times, you know, I've spent working six months with people just thinking about looking at relationship, relationship patterns. And then they get to the point of, okay, what do you want for yourself? You know, and, and making note of, I may have seen this. Um, maybe this is all that I have known, but I'm ready to change that narrative. I want better. And understanding they're not to blame for that. So it's it's just a process. You know, it just it's just a process. So it just take one day at a time, one session at a time. And mm-hmm. so when people are ready to leave, you know, we are empowering them. We are giving them the tools to do that and make that decision, empowering them. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious also kind of going back to your comments about the emotional abuse, right? Because mm-hmm. I would imagine that that would be some significant work probably in therapy when people have yes. been made to believe or not even trust their own thoughts, you know, because there has been gaslighting or, you know, really taking a hit on their self-worth. So what kind of work might you be able to do with them in therapy to to really target some of those concerns? Yes. And so I have utilized a variety of blends of um, cognitive behavior therapy, really helping with um, the thought patterns, irrational thinking. And also I have used some relational culture theory, right? With just really helping them with understanding growth, fostering relationships and understanding how, um, especially for African-American women, how systems of oppression have contributed to uh, multiple experiences of oppression and discrimination and racism, how they're more at risk for experiencing domestic violence. For example, if you're going to say we're going to refer them to an agency, it's a possibility that they may get discriminated against because of intersecting identities. And these are real things that we have to understand why Black women are such at risk for domestic violence when it comes to systemic oppression and racism and the complexity of it and how domestic violence shows up for them compared to white women. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know in working even just with students, you know, there is sometimes a hesitation, like mm-hmm. if there's going to be a report made or, right. you know, that you have to look at that too, because it, it feels like a betrayal almost to the community, like, oh, I'm going to put this person in jail or something. Absolutely. And so even that becomes a bigger priority than their own concern and welfare. Right. And that goes back to the result, again, of historical oppression. Yeah. And present day racism and how. Um, African-American women may be less likely to report or seek help, awareness of discrimination and the negative stereotype of how African-American men um, have been treated, dealing with police brutality. These are all factors and that can discourage a woman from seeking help for domestic violence. And then that contributes to the high rate of domestic violence, right? They're not going to report. I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be another, I don't want to contribute to how um, Black men are treated um, because of what I have endured, right? So they somehow take that responsibility on. They don't report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite resources related to this topic, Dr. Brown, for anybody who needs to read more about this or is interested in learning more about this? One of my favorite resources is a book I help, again, goes back to the education piece, is a book called Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft. And I have found that book very enlightening, but also on my clients and people that I serve I found that, oh my God, this book has really enlightened me. It has really opened up my eyes to what I am experiencing. And there's a name for it now, right? I didn't know this. Um, But we have to understand the shame and the stigma attached to domestic violence, the same as we have with mental illness. And so there's a lot of shame and attached to it. So, but when they begin to read the book or when we have the power and control will, they say, hey, now I feel educated. Now I feel empowered. Now I can begin to proceed with taking my voice back. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it's about education. It's yeah. about reading. It's about helping you understand what you have endured, right? So that's one of my very first books that I go to. And then um, one of my favorite podcasts, I would say, uh, is A Date with Darkness by Dr. Natalie Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is a licensed therapist and, and in, you know, who specializes in working with people who are trying to heal from relational abuse and her work with narcissists and narcissistic behavior. And I find that as a good tool for people to really get education on tips and how to heal and develop healthy relationships. You know, we are all relational beings and we all desire relational contact and connection. But I think it's important to learn about patterns and learn how to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. Perfect. Any other resources or websites that you want to share? Yes. A website that I go to is the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community, also known as Ujima. And I find that very helpful because they have a strong voice on looking at and being um, taking a stand on violence against women in the Black community. And also, I would say a call to men, which is an international violence against women prevention organization that really promotes healthy manhood in, in, in violence against women and girls. So these are two resources and they provide a wealth of information for um, the African-American community. Yeah. Perfect. And where can we find you online? What's your website as well as any social media handles you'd like to share? Yes, my website is www.drshanitabrown.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Dr. Shanita Brown, Facebook and Instagram as well. under Dr. Shanita Brown. Perfect. And of course, we will include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brown. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Joy, for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad Dr. Brown was able to share her expertise with us today. 
To find out more information about her and her practice and the resources that she shared, check out the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 129. And please don't forget to share this episode with two people in your circle, as you never know who needs to hear the information. And be sure to share your takeaways with us either on Twitter or in your IG stories using the hashtag TBG in session. Remember that if you're searching for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic and meet some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com YCC. And don't forget to check out our online store where you can grab a copy of our guided affirmation track, breakup journal, or your favorite Therapy for Black Girls t-shirts, sweatshirts, or mugs. Grab your goodies at therapyforblackgirls.com shop. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care.